Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. It's spring, so we're starting to get the gardens ready. And As moviegoers brace for the arrival of Marvel Avengers Age of Ultron, it is the sad duty of this critic, now watching an advanced screening, to tell you this movie is incredibly super boring. Mostly people with no superpowers talking about their jobs and their dog and their kids. Kyle, that's not a movie. You're telling me it's not a movie. It's so dull. It's like three hours long. And, and then this kind of older lady comes on the screen and says she's getting on the road. Is she Ultron? I thought Ultron was a, like a big robot. You don't understand. I understand plenty. As a critic, I want to be a voice for the restoration of craft. Would Hitchcock have made such a boring superhero movie? I don't think so. And what about Truffle? Truffaut. I haven't memorized all the names yet. Look, this is the Getting Started video announcing the Hillary 2016 campaign. It's not the Avengers movie, and it's only two minutes long. It's my first day as a film critic. You can't expect me to know everything. Is this guy Thor? No, I think he's starting a kitty litter company. Dang, reviewing movies is a lot harder than I thought. So let's hear a conversation between our host and America's greatest living film critic, David Edelstein. And now he gave Benji a bad review because he said it focused too much on the dog. Colin McEnroe. You're about to hear a conversation between me and David Edelstein, who's the film critic for Fresh Air here on WNPR and CBS Sunday Morning and New York Magazine. We recorded this conversation last Wednesday evening in front of a live audience at Watkinson School. I've talked to David many times, but not so much about what it's like to be a film critic. You'll hear more about that in this conversation. All right, so I want to begin with just sort of you grew up around here, you went to school down the road or up the road at Loomis Chafee. Your mom's here tonight. You got to be careful what you say. Did you have one or two aha moments as a very young guy sitting in a movie theater in the Hartford area or up in Cambridge at college where you thought, yeah, I really want to just write about this. This movie's making me want to be a film critic. There were a few things, and they are very Hartford-related. Watching Chiller Theater as a kid on, I think it was Channel 40 uh, in Springfield. Does, does Channel 40 still exist? It, I don't think so. One no. of our, Channels don't exist. There was Channel 40, Channel 22, Channel 30, of course, Channel 3, of course. But uh, Chiller Theater on Saturday night, and... The Bride of Frankenstein was was a, I was a horror geek. Many maladjusted, potentially psychopathic children are, and <laughs> I I guess The Bride of Frankenstein was the first film I realized that you could have a horror film that was also satirical, that was hilarious, that was beautiful and lyrical and sad and this mixture of tones. And it was shortly after this, I, maybe it was in seventh grade or eighth grade, I went to a Hartford stage company of Waltz of the Toreadors, and it was a wonderful production. Uh, I guess Paul Widener maybe directed it back in the day. And Waltz of the Toreadors by Jean Ennui is a very interesting play because it's a flat-out bedroom farce. But Ennui is, he's not Fado, he's a little bit more modern, and there's one point in the play towards the end where you're laughing your ass off 
but all of a sudden you just get it. It hits you like a, like a sock to the solar plexus. The bottom falls out of it and you suddenly see the tragedy of these people's lives, particularly the protagonist, this loveless marriage, this hopeless life, the absolute absurdity of the institutions that he, he's surrounded by. And again, it was that moment where these two tones colliding, these two seemingly opposite tones, doing something, kind of making me buzz. And I don't know, what does a kid do with something like that? You know, you, you buzz, and then you go home, and you think about it, and we didn't really have the internet. So I, I immediately started digging around in criticism. I remember a bookstore in West Hartford Center. I found a book by Robert Brewstein, then dean of the Yale School of Drama. And it didn't talk about Waltz of the Toreadors, but it had enough in there, including a section on horror films. And from there to Pauline Kael. And I'm actually one of these people who came to film criticism, not just from a love of film and a love of theater, but a love of criticism, too. A, you know, a deep love of the kind of criticism that just does not get written anymore, or at least it may get written, but people can't make a decent living doing it. It's really a dying form. One of the things that you were talking to me about before this was this notion that you have, you, know, you just said being a film critic is, is a dying industry. Maybe it is or maybe it isn't. But one of the things you want to do is help any filmgoer discover the critic within. Talk to these people. How do they, how do they become their own film critics? Pauline Kael was very important to me because what she taught me was how you experience a film or a play or a piece of music or, or a book or any work of art. Your responses are smarter than you are, your instant responses. They kind of go beyond you. They go beyond your ideology, oftentimes you know, how, you were, how you were raised, sometimes your genetic makeup, your, sometimes your frontal lobes. I mean, and part of the challenge and I think the joy of being a film critic is that you're forced to explain your responses to yourself. And that's actually really hard. I mean, well, it was hard for me. Everybody can come out and say, oh, I loved it, or I didn't love it. Mm -hmm. But when you come out buzzing or you come out angry, just to be able to do that, to be able to go back. And I'm lucky because I, I have a terrible memory. I'm not lucky. I have a terrible memory. But I sit down and I type up all my notes. And I kind of re-experience the things that struck me while I was watching. I almost relive the film. And so to be able to say, ah, this is why. And to be able to extrapolate from it, maybe to my experience, maybe to some nebulous universal experience, whatever that is. Ken Tyne and the great theater critic once said that he loved Harold Clerman, another great film critic, because Clerman, every time he sat down to read Clerman, he sort of felt as if Clerman sort of started with the character, then the play, then the theater, then the city, then the country, then the world, then the universe, then God, then it, you know, or, or whatever. And you kept mushrooming out until you, you understood the place of this thing in your own personal cosmos and why it struck you the way it did. So I think everybody can do that, and some people do it without thinking. I want to stay with this for a moment. First of all, let's maybe even sort of walk them through that experience. Let's pick a film from the last six months that a lot of them have seen. Boyhood, Birdman, Interstellar. 
That might be fun because I hated Interstellar so much more than you did. Um, no, I thought it was hilariously terrible. That was, that was a case where I was laughing at it the whole time, and I was laughing at the people who take Christopher Nolan seriously and just thinking, this is... Uh, nah, I shouldn't say that because that's, that gets me... Because somebody, you've gotten in so much trouble somebody, in the past. And I, I have, We're going to come to the... I've got that in my notes. Okay. The Batman thing is coming. But Someone, I can't remember who, Matthew Arnold perhaps, or some dead white Englishman... <laughs> has talked about the critic has a dual self of a critic. You are watching and you are experiencing the mm. work completely, 100%. But there is another part that is watching you experiencing it. One of my worst times, I was an ex-girlfriend. I was sitting in a theater and I, was, I had some thoughts and I would say, I would whisper something, shh, I'm trying to watch the movie. Now, a lot of people are like that, but to me, it's perfectly possible to have a conversation with yourself while you're experiencing 100% mm-hmm. of the... Where somebody's laughing like... You, they just don't want to be said, sitting behind you, you yeah, okay, while you're you, you doing said that. that. Yeah. But I think that this dual self... And Pauline Kael, again, I keep returning to her, but her metaphors, her titles of her books, Deeper Into Movies, I Lost It at the Movies, you know, she was kiss, kiss, bang, bang. You know, she was very sort of sexual. She experienced movies sexually. And I always thought it was sort of funny. She could, a director could sort of make love to her and she could experience this being made love to while at the same time providing a running commentary on what he was doing wrong and right, Mm. which I'm sure would be extremely annoying if she were actually, maybe that's why she wasn't married for very long, but (laughs) but I think that that ability to do that, to be able to watch a movie like Boyhood and to be able to relate to the characters on a simple realism basis, oh here's this kid walking along doing his things, Uh uh-oh, it's now three years later and he's got a little acne on his nose, and maybe he doesn't look so great right now, and then three years after that, he's really good-looking, and he's sprouting up. To be able to have that sort of amazement and go along with that, but at the same time saying, well, why is the filmmaker doing this? What is, what is to be gained by... We've seen characters grow old in movies. What is unique to this? What are we experiencing in here? What is going on between the relationship between the actors who are cast in the film, and the characters. And it's through that that, that I sort of arrived at the idea that the, the main character of that movie wasn't the boy or the parents, but was time. Time is the main character, yeah, I and, agree. And thinking then about, about um, Richard Linklater's, the director's other films, which the most distinctive of which have time in their titles, Before Sunrise, Before Midnight, Before Sunset... And realizing that he's working with time as a character, as a variable, that either pushes people together for these extraordinary moments or is something that you follow as it evolves. You know, the impact of time on character, on human personality as it evolves. As I'm saying that, what's feeding into my head right now is a film I just reviewed called Clouds of Sils Maria by this great director, Olivier Assayas with Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart and Chloe Grace Moritz. It's an, it's an American film, and time is also the subject of it. And how do you do that? How do you take a medium that's essentially surface, that's superficial, literally, it's surfaces. A movie doesn't plug itself into you. It's, you're, you're looking at surfaces of people, and it doesn't get in your head quite the same way a book does. But how is it that we experience the passing of time beyond the two hours that it takes to go through the movie? And to be able to do that in the case of Oliver Assayas, to use 
celebrity gossip and clothes and glamour, the most ephemeral things, to make you realize at a certain point that he's not talking about these ephemeral things. He's talking about the ephemerality of us. When that hits you, again, it's like that bottom of your stomach drops out and you go like, wow, this is going to change how I see the world, which is really what art is all about, right? Mm -hmm. It's about surprise. If you go in to see something and you basically, it's good, but it does everything that you expect it to do. It doesn't disorient you. It doesn't surprise you. What's the point? Then it's just kind of a drug, which is what a lot of movies these days are. They're drug experiences. They're narcotics or they're amphetamines or, or they're just ways of passing the time without thinking you're going to die. So, I mean, at these screenings, I, I don't know, what, what's that like? I mean, are you guys all friends? Do you go out for... Oh, no, we hate yeah. each other. Most <laughs> of us. Critics are awfully dull people, and the ones who aren't dull <laughs> usually kind of save themselves, reserve their charm for uh, either for the page or for their superiors. It's also dangerous. I've gone out with critics after screenings, and we've gone and gotten drinks or dinner and talked about the film, and I've found that lines of mine have ended up in their reviews. I've also found, to my horror, lines of theirs ending up in mine, going, how did that happen? I, I oh, yeah, <laughs> he said that, or she said that. It can be fun. The best stuff is when you're, is when you're palling around with people at a film festival in mm. Toronto or in Utah or in France, and then, and then you kind of read, what did you see? Oh, you know, it's great to go to a film festival. What I hate about film festivals for my job is I have to write about it. Mm -hmm. But the idea of going to see five or six movies in a day, to me, is heaven, even if some of them are bad, because you're clutching your schedule. Oh, what did you see? What did you see? Oh, my God, what's starting? It's starting in five minutes. Oh, my God, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's hurry up, hurry up. And, you know, slipping in at the last minute and grabbing some seat way in the front, but that sense of incredible excitement that festivals, festivals are wonderful things. Hartford doesn't really have a festival, does it? No. Now, well, the, we, no, not, not like that. The no. Berkshires. Berkshire, <clears throat> Berkshires is represented here tonight. They've got yes, somebody. And, and I especially love smaller regional festivals because oftentimes they'll bring me in and I'll get to do a Q&A on stage with someone much more interesting than I am. And, uh, you know, Robert Duvall or Sissy Spacek or Frank Langella or Christopher Plummer. And, and it'll be wonderful because the audience is just so turned on at festivals. They're mm -hmm. just, they're movie drunk. They're movie mad. They want to see the filmmakers. They want to talk to them. They want to talk about movies. That's the best way. That's, that's I hate the word cinephilia because it's so ugly, but it's, it, we're all cinephiliacs. Uh. My son and I were in Sedona one time and we just, there was a film festival there we didn't know about. We bought passes and I remember at one of the screenings, the lead actor, it's in some indie film, gave a, did a little talk back with the audience. It was nighttime, and afterwards he said, could somebody give me a ride to my hotel? And so we drove him back to his hotel. I mean, there's sort of, sort of a shrinking down of that gap between what you see on the screen. I and, gave and Sissy Spacek a ride to her hotel in Virginia, and I got lost. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> And I th I'm sure it was excruciating for her because then I was like, well, let's take advantage of the time. Like, what was it like shooting? Um, you know, I really have to tell you about that. And, and she's like this incredibly modest, like, she, she saves it. for. She's a really sweet, modest person who doesn't... The last thing she wanted was my, you know, enthusing in her ear while we were driving in pitch blackness in the Virginia countryside. But... But I enjoyed it. We're live here at Watkinson School with David Edelstein. We're going to take a break. We'll come right back. Let's hear it from the audience. 
You mentioned Christopher Nolan, and I think it was the first. Was it the first Batman movie that he directed? No, the second. The like, second one. I like the okay. first one. So the a second one comes out. Yeah, I think you were with Slate at the side. Were you still at Slate? I, my, that's my I, memory. No, I I can't remember. I think you were at Slate. It doesn't you, matter where you, I was. Yeah, you wrote a review that so you'd seen it. Yeah. The fan base had not seen it, and they were furious at you nonetheless. I mean, at one point, I think I called you up and said, "I'll read the comments." You don't read the comments. <laughs> if I come across an actual death threat, I'll call you and tell you about it. But please don't read the comments because what's it? I mean, you were kind of in a it was well, look, a fire everybody, everybody, look, everybody. The comments section. This this great id has been unleashed <laughs> upon the world via the internet. You know, I, I don't know if you've been following this horrific statue of Lucille Ball that mm-hmm. was put in her hometown park that really it looks like a, a mythical Gorgon. It's, and that's, that's being kind. It certainly bears no relation to... And, you know, the poor sculptor, you, you expect that the poor sculptor is a laughingstock. He gave it... He made it for some people who then donated it to the city kindly. And it's been there a few years, and someone picked it up and went viral, as we say. The guy's gotten death threats. Now... The ridicule is bad enough, but death threats because he ineptly made a statue that didn't look anything like Lucille Ball. At Slate, I reviewed a movie called The Mummy Returns by uh, Stephen Summers, and somebody sent me an email that said, um, I only wish harm to you and your family <laughs> over The Mummy Returns. <laughs> what? The- was what this the, the, Bre- the Brendan Fraser movie? Uh, yeah, yeah, the Brendan Fraser okay. movie. What the hell? I mean, what do you, uh, you, you just, you, you have to understand that people are frustrated. They live, they live lives of, it used to be quiet desperation, and now it's noisy. noisy commenting desperation. So, but the problem with, with The Dark Knight, and, and many people love The Dark Knight, and also I've met a few people who have said, they really thought it was overrated, which is gratifying to hear. But the problem with The Dark Knight and me is that I, I ruined the Rotten Tomato Meter 100% score. Now, there are people out there, maybe even some of them grown up, who pay attention to the Tomato Meter, which is the aggregation, it's the aggregation site of reviews. And there's a meter, and you're... If they love a movie, they want the tomato meter score to be 100. And I took it down to 98. <laughs> now, subsequently, I think it dropped to like 89. But I was the guy who did it, so I became public enemy number one in the, the nerd um, Comic-Con, comic communist community. Um, <laughs> the comic book people are, are the... When I was a kid... I hate the sentences that start out when I was a kid, but you have to... It's, it's not that I'm thinking nostalgically. It's just that I use that, that phrase a lot when I was a kid because uh, I'm not going that, that it was the good old days, but that it's just so interesting to see how, how the culture has changed and how much people have changed along with it. Um, there was this cliche in the 50s of the kid hiding the comic book under the bed for fear that the grown-up would spot it because it was this terrible, corrupting influence. And if you were caught reading comic books, you were punished rather severely. And Congress even punished horror comic makers, Mm -hmm. you know, at very famous and ridiculous hearings. Well, in the space of of, of a few decades, now a grown-up is punished for not reading comic books. 
if I write about a Marvel comic movie without knowing, without having read the complete evolution of Captain America, and I express my ignorance in print, I better hide under the bed because <laughs> you are going to get thousands of emails or comments from people telling you why should they listen to anything you have to say if you don't understand that it's Captain America's left arm that's bionic versus his right, <laughs> I, what, whatever it is. I don't, he's not bionic. But you, you know, it's, it's, on, it's on that level. Yeah, but I, I do want to talk for a moment about something that you love that I don't. You love horror movies. You're a ho horror movie freak, as you said, from way back. Although you recently saw, and you have some friends out here, you actually recently saw a, a horror movie that upset you called It Follows. Uh, you didn't have as much fun as you usually did. But you said something really interesting in the review. You said, horror is essentially a reactionary genre, although a lot of progressive filmmakers have worked to counter that. When you say horror is essentially a reactionary genre, what do you mean? Well, remember how I talked early on, I held forth about explaining one's reactions to oneself. I, at a very early age, mom, stuck out of, snuck out of bed and <laughs> turned on the TV at 2 in the morning and saw the film Horror of Dracula. And with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, and that was one of those horror films that changed my life. I became obsessed with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. I actually flew to, for the New York Times and interviewed Christopher Lee, never meet your heroes, piece of advice. <laughs> um, and, you, you know, the, the movie really formed a lot of, lot of my thinking about the world, sadly, and it was only when I got to a certain age and I actually analyzed well, what is it about? It's about everybody decried Hammer films, the decadence of Hammer films they, with their big busted uh, heroines and, and the blood and the gore. But that's a deeply reactionary film. It's about a foreigner who comes to England and threatens the innocence and purity of the women. And the men have to band together with the... Um, the power of the church, the crucifix, and the holy water. And they have to track down this vampire who has, in effect, sexualized this woman because as soon as she has been bitten by the vampire, she is in his spell. The cleavage becomes more... She, she sort of un, She's suddenly seen in nightgowns. She unbuttons. And there is a, a, another young woman who is turned into a vampire and is kind of held down by these monks and a giant stake is driven through her heart, you know, and she's very sexual And before that. And then as she, when she dies and the, the spell is gone, she suddenly looks very beautiful and demure in her coffin with a giant stake through her heart. As, as she, and her father, you know, cries and, and is patted and, you know, she's with God now. And there are movies like The Exorcist. I mean, think about The Exorcist. What is, what is The Exorcist? It's about an actress She's not married. Her husband is, she's separated from her husband. Husband isn't around for their daughter. She entertains homosexual directors and theater people and film people at her house. She's barely there for her beautiful, innocent, radiant daughter. And the devil comes into the daughter. And the devil comes in. It was written during the counterculture. It was released not at the height of the counterculture, but a little bit after when there was a backlash against the counterculture. Pauline said it was the best recruiting poster for the Catholic Church since Going My Way. Many exorcism movies are about you know, the counterculture about the, the decadent left coming in and, dis, you know, threatening the family, either, either a female child or, or a woman, and the church having to come in 
and set things right. Well, The Exorcist came out right around the time I think Philip Reif had written the book Triumph of, of the Therapeutic, which was this very conservative rejection of therapy-oriented and therapeutic culture. And if you think about The Exorcist, for the first half of the movie, Ellen Burstyn keeps taking her daughter to psychiatrists and for spinal taps and to hypnotists and other therapists. And everybody in the audience, all of you are sitting there going, you idiot, take her to a priest. She's possessed by the devil. What's and, wrong with and you? And L. Ron Hubbard would have said he, she just needs her thetans. Right. She needs to get her thetans out. You know, it's just it's it's Zenu who's who's in her. But actually, he's taking advantage of exactly the same thing. That's right. the thetans and Zenu. What's Zenu? What's powerful about that ridiculous myth? I don't know if you saw Alex Gibney's great documentary that was on HBO. What's powerful about that? I mean, it it is the. The, uh, I mean, so much of those ridiculous e-meters, it's about purging those demons on a sort of a daily basis to achieve this higher level of... I mean, there's other things, too. There's aspects of est in there as well. But mm. you have to understand that these are very... Horror is a very reactionary genre. Halloween is a movie... I mean, whether John Carpenter meant it or not, but the girls who sleep with... The, the teenage girls who sleep with guys get killed, and the one who's a virgin lives, defeats the monster, at least until there's a sequel and another sequel and another sequel and another sequel. But I mean, and, and this was a pattern. Now, now there are female horror directors who are beginning to go against this and actually explore. I think horror is a great genre because it can find metaphors for female sexuality or, fem- or, or female repression or, the, or, you know, inner struggles. You know, real juicy, bloody, <laughs> vivid metaphors and and I think it's exciting that women are that women are discovering that too. Um, it follows just just really hurt. It freaks you out. Some of these horror some of these horror movies hurt. Mm-hmm. I'll say one last thing because I know you want to open it to questions. But one of the interesting things about going to movies now is that thanks to computer generated imagery, miracles are cheap. Pretty much you can walk in and a director can throw money at anything and visualize anything. Whereas horror does better when you don't see mm-hmm. or when there aren't a lot of special effects, when things are left to your imagination. It follows, the scariest thing and it follows is just somebody is sitting there and way far away across a field, there's somebody walking toward them and you see it before the character does and maybe the character turns around and it's just an ordinary human being. But you know that the people who have this curse and it follows people are always going to be taken possession by something. We never know what. They're always going to be tracked, no matter where they are, no matter what time of day, by entities in human form. And just seeing somebody casually, not even particularly fast, walking across a field toward somebody fills you with the kind of dread that no special effect. Remember uh, Don't Look Now? A little person running around in a little red raincoat. I mean, that's like as scary as it gets. Glimpse and you never even see the creature fully. That is scary. Alien, the first Alien movie is scary because you never really see the alien in the first Alien movie. This isn't always true. There's no law, but oftentimes what you don't see, there's nothing that's scarier than nothing. And horror is actually something that you can make with low budgets. You don't need $200 million to do it. Mm-hmm. Blair Witch was made for peanuts, and it took advantage of the, of the new technology, of, of you know, the idea that we, we can film everything we do with a video camera. 
but it limited us to what the lens saw, to what we didn't, we, we had no peripheral vision. We only saw through the lens of this camera what the characters saw, and that, that there was no omniscient point of view that could make us sort of relax and think, oh, well, we see everything there is to see. And that created the kind of dread. Uh, there's a movie that cost nothing mm. and, um, and changed horror. We're live here at Watkinson School with David Edelstein. We're going to take a break. We'll come right back. Let's hear it from the audience. I saw the preview of the trailer for the new Furious 7 movie, but I didn't feel adequately prepared. I wish there'd been like a like a short teaser for the preview of the trailer. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our friends at Event Resources. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ludacris. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff parachuting their cars out of a transport plane, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, a trip back in time to the Black Panther trials in New Haven, when the city sat on the brink of chaos. And now, back to Colin. All right, Jenny's got the microphone. Uh, Stick your hands up. It's time. Uh, You get to ask your questions. I'm actually somebody who would love to own a movie theater. So what suggestions would you have for somebody who would like to own and run a movie theater? My second childhood dream, uh, when I have my second childhood, I'm going to open up a movie theater. I'd love to do that. So what would you do? Find another dream, maybe, but but no, I, I no, I, I don't I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. You know, in my lifetime, we've seen the dismantling of the mom and pop theater by the big chains, and the big chains have so much more leverage with the studios in terms of cutting deals. And even the big chains now make a lot of their money on those absurd, absurdly overpriced refreshments. Oftentimes, the big movies they they have to lock into a certain now, there are exceptions. There are, if you have a community of people who are going to support you and you can run a theater, nowadays everything is digital, pretty much. You, you really need to invest in a big digital system because the days of ordering 16-millimeter or 35-millimeter prints are done. And you need a, a programming strategy that's just very different from what the multiplexes are, and you need to cultivate the local press and cultivate people like Colin and I don't know I mean you you, you, sh- you should first of all go talk to Mr. Gorlick I think his name is who runs the Madison independent thing and then Bantam out in Litchfield also has that there are a couple you, you probably do you remember Avon the Avon Park with Sylvia Sylvia no there was the Avon twin the Avon twin and there's an Avon twin oh yeah, that's right in the, Avon the Avon Park twin at the base of the mountain and yeah. I went up to them and I said I'm David Elstein I'm in you know eighth grade or whatever I love horror movies you should screen horror movie you should screen a horror double feature every weekend and and they took my advice and they lost their shirts on it and they were <laughs> They were like, I thought you said, I, I, I got all my friends to come. I, you know, I, I, the theaters were half or two-thirds full of, but, I, but it takes a lot of yeah. money. To, I, I hope you do it because, I mean. Yes. Was, Here's you know. an idea. Start a drive-in. Yeah. <laughs> I miss drive I miss drive-ins. I still go to my, my wife's uh, parents have a house in, uh, in Cape Cod, and I go to the yeah. Wellfleet drive-in That's a great drive-in. every year. And Colin did a show on drive-ins. Yeah, we did a show from a drive-in. Recently. We went out to Mansfield out there uh, and did the show from there. But, those... you know, Chinese, you know, three-hour Chinese avant-garde movies don't play that well on drive-in screens. But 
I miss revival houses, but nowadays they have been taken over MoMA or Lincoln Center in New York, or there are, there are just places now, and, and universities oftentimes can run these nonprofit theaters. It's just not, it, it's not a way to make a huge amount of profit if you have some spare income and a lot of passion. Maybe you can find a niche audience, enough of a niche audience to run something like that. And I would say, boy, call me on opening night. I'll yeah. be there with bells on. All right, so uh, who have you got up there, Jenny? I thought I saw a student hand. Hello, I'm one of several students, film students here at Watkinson. And lately I've been really thinking about what makes a film relevant to our culture now, but also what is ahead in, in the film world? Because I'm not making feature films now, but I hope to be in the future. And I think part of being able to do that is, is looking forward and thinking about in the world of, of film and storytelling, what is important now and what will be more important in the future. And well, I just want to interrupt you for a second. What do you love? What do I love? What do you love in movies? That's a big question. <laughs> well, that's, but I mean, that's, that's what it is because I'm not going to tell you a genre or a kind of movie because it, it begins and ends with what you, as, as an aspiring filmmaker, what turns you on and what it is that you want to express. It would um, be very arrogant, uh, not that I'm not arrogant, for me, <laughs> but for me to tell you, oh, this is what's working now, or this is what, what we want to see. What we want to see is what you have to show us. So I can watch a film like Boyhood and say, wow, that was a beautiful film, and Linklater did a great job, but it doesn't move me the same way that Citizen Kane does, or 2001 A Space Odyssey. It doesn't take me to this sort of separate universe, this fantasy world that is so enticing, and it doesn't speak to me the same way that those films do. And I'm wondering, will there be such a thing as like a classic film in the future? Is, is the classic film a dying breed? I mean, especially in a no, world that is so connected, and there's, it's like anyone can make a movie for a buck. What, sure, what, will, I... what will make a film last as long as something... Like those films. There, there is no hard and set rules about that, and anybody who tries to tell you there are, you should walk away from as fast as humanly possible. Maybe they're an ideologue, or maybe they're a, a doctrinaire auteurist, or something like that. But it sounds to me that you are not as turned on by, by naturalism or, or, or realism. And there is a lot, a lot of the lower-budget films, a lot of the so-called mumblecore films or films made on the scale that Richard Linklater does are essentially, you know, would-be realistic films. Citizen Kane is a fantastically stylized movie. Kubrick's 2001 is a fantastically stylized movie with a canvas that is like nothing else. Uh, right now, the kinds of filmmakers who are doing that, uh, I mean, do you like Terrence Malick? I have I have issues with some of his work, but he is a genuinely tra he he is seeking a kind of transcendence through film, a language of film that goes beyond anything that realism can provide. And by the way, this is one thing I would say on that score is, as television has gotten better and better, from The Sopranos to The Wire to Mad Men uh, to Breaking Bad. Television has now offered opportunities for narrative storytelling, for storytelling on a, on a wide canvas that we've never seen before. Movies, it seems to me, in order to be able to offer their own unique things, 
maybe have to use more of the expressive tools of cinema, more of the sorts of things that Orson Welles used, more of the this sort of dreamlike quality that Terence Malick uses. I would say that there's nothing more wonderful than to see a young filmmaker invent his or her own language of storytelling. The language of cinema is very elastic. The syntax, you can, the most exciting filmmakers create create their own languages, their own way of telling a story. Far be it from me to tell you what form that will take. That has to come organically from you based on how you see the world and what you feel are the most expressive tools of, of cinema for you. All right, we've got time for probably one well, more. I've got to go Simone, over here. Simone gets the last question. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Um, I just want to tell you... Be- Something you said earlier about how a movie can change you and affect you so deeply. And I had that experience with a movie, I think it was about 40 years ago because I was in college, and it was the, um, the film Cries and Whispers. And I was so distraught by, by that movie. I actually was having nightmares about it. I couldn't stop talking about it for a month. I, I hated it the first time I saw it. I was very disturbed by it. And then I went back, and I really fell in love with the movie. A few weeks later, it was still playing in New York, and I, I went to see it again. I just would like to know what you thought of that movie. Well, I liked it very much. It's not my favorite Bergman movie, but here is what Bergman was able to do. He, was, he came out of the theater, and he came out of these very intense psychological dramas, these sort of tug-of-wars, a lot of them written by August Strindberg and Henrik Ibsen. He was a great man of the theater, And he created a cinematic language. He created his own language for getting this kind of material on film. It was close-up. It was X-ray. It it went beyond conventional psychology in a lot of ways because it used mythic elements and sometimes even magical elements. If you see Persona, they're they're sort of surreal, dreamlike imagery all through this. He gave you X-rays of the soul. I don't know too many filmmakers who are working on that level today. Woody Allen tried, but Woody Allen, no matter what he does, he, he's not a Swede. He tries very hard not to be a, a Jewish boy from Queens, but that language isn't his own. He's made some very impressive films, Husbands and Wives and, and a few others in, in that kind of mode. But that was an organic language for Ingmar Bergman in a very specific place, Sweden, where people keep a lot of stuff in and where he was able to use the camera and space, the space on screen, the relationship of the figures to the space and to the environment, to the houses, to the landscape in order to create this new language. And to return back to your question again, what we should look for in directors nowadays, well, many things, but no hard and fast rules, but to me, someone who loves actors and who wants to, isn't using them as just props but wants to really use the creativity and the soul of the actor but also someone who wants to tell a story in a way that's never been told before not quoting from other movies not building necessarily on top of other movies though that's possible too but someone who really wants to create a unique cinematic language because the form is endangered, and I don't mean it's endangered. I don't mean tomorrow we're going to stop watching movies, but think about it. Pretty soon we're going to experience scenarios. They're going to plug electrodes into our brain, 
and we're going to live these virtual scenarios, and we're going to be able to make choices about what we see and we don't That's see. That's that guy's movie theater. They're going to do yeah. that to people <laughs> when he's opening. Do you, do you know what I mean? Everything, everything is, is moving. In, it's moving toward choice. People now, they spend so much money to go to the theater. They want to see something that they know what they're going to see. They don't want to be disoriented. They don't want to be surprised. And that might mean even treasuring noble failures. That might mean even treasuring artists who try something and who fail. But that's what it is. Cinema still has so much to teach us about how we live now and how we've always lived. If you leave with, with one message here, that thing that we returned to at the beginning, this, this dual self of the critic or learning how to explain your own reactions to yourself, go out and look to be disoriented. Look to see something that you've never seen before. Look to be turned upside down and then figure out how to write yourself. And I promise you that your lives will feel, you may have wonderful full lives, but they will feel fuller and even more meaningful after that. I think she gets points for going back to Cries and Whispers after it gave you nightmares. I mean, I, I, I had a similar experience with Tree of Life. We were talking about Terrence Malick, where I just freaked me out the first time, and I forced myself to go back and see it again on a big screen. And it, you know, I mean, sometimes you have to do that, because it is the movie that disorients you. It's the movie that distorts your whole vision of yourself. Not everybody can do that. I can... I remember seeing movies with my dear grandmother. God bless her, you know. What is this? I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> well, sure, we've all, we've all felt that way, but, but a real journey is not going to show you stuff that you've seen before. All right, we have to stop, I think. First of all, I have to thank a few people. Event Resources, they're so great. They make the sound of this so easy. Thanks to Terry Schrader from Watkinson, Jenny French from Watkinson. A big hand for David Edelstein. Woo! That's why God made the movie.